for seeing this uh, presentation that we'll enter into soon with uh, the sheep and their uh, associates. I want to take us into the Word for just a little bit. And I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. Uh, Like James pointed out, not so much all the commercialism or any of that. I don't love any of the commercialism, but but I love the pondering. Because Christmas is a great time to ponder. Because this event that we're going to see portrayed here presents to us such amazing history and, 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 and says so much to us. The message of Christmas presents a world of things to ponder and things to be embraced. So I love Christmas. And if you're one of those bah humbuggers that think Christmas shouldn't be celebrated by Christians, I just want to remind you, without Christmas, there is no Easter. Amen? And if you're a Christian, you've got to love Easter. So uh, we've got to love Christmas because he came to die. And Easter and Christmas are inseparable. So both are just the most wonderful times of the year for us. Um, we're going to look at a passage that I've been pondering this week that uh, is not typically considered a Christmas passage, but I hope you'll agree with me when we're finished that it is. And it should be pondered in light of the Incarnation. And, and that's Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I think Noah's going to have some scriptures up on the overheads for us. Although I'm going to be reading from the uh, ESV And the church doesn't have that in our computer. But whatever you have up there, you can figure it all out. But this passage in Philippians 2 is very special. It even has its own name. It's called the kenosis. And as we read it, I want you to look for two things. I want you to look for the kenosis, which means the emptying. Okay? And also, as we look at it, I want you to look for... The two advents of Christ, because they're both in this passage. And actually, verses 5 through 11 were one of the earliest hymns of the church. Most scholars, whoever they are, agree that verses 5 through 11 was a hymn that was sung often in the church. And it's rich with theology, especially about the nature of our king. Amen. So we're going to read it and I want you to look for the kenosis, look for the advents. Okay. Um, And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Set it up a little more. The context of this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing from jail in Philippi. He is talking in chapter one about the persecution that he is suffering in jail and that the Philippians are suffering because of their walk with Christ and their faith in Christ. But his concern is that because of the pressure on them through persecution, that they stay in unity. So chapter 2 is about unity obtained through humility. Okay? So keep that in mind as we read it as well. Chapter 2, starting at verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see the unity he's crying out for there among God's people. And then he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then the hymn begins. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is rich, my brothers and sisters. Um, one of the most shocking things to me about Christmas, one of those things that I love to ponder is the way Jesus came, how he came. He is king of the universe, creator of all of us and everything, eternal, God Almighty. And how did he come? In just incredible humility. He snuck into this world almost unnoticed, was born and placed in an animal feeding trough. That's what a manger is. No pomp, no fanfare, no great glory and applause. I, I, I was thinking about, Don and I were coming back from uh, Peru, actually, a couple years ago. We, we were in the airport in Panama City, Panama. And as we're waiting for our flight, we realized there's a red carpet rolled out and there are all these soldiers standing at attention at the sides of this red carpet and all these people in the airport are gathered around and we gathered around. We said, what? What's going on? And they said, the king of Denmark is in the airport and he's going to come off that elevator and walk down this red carpet. So we, oh, so we stand there and we wait to see the king of Denmark. And sure enough, the elevator opens and all these people get off and and the king is there in the middle of him. He just looked look like a normal guy to me. But uh, everybody starts applauding. Oh, it's the king of Denmark. King of Denmark. And there's red carpets and soldiers at attention and everybody's cheering. Compared to this. I mean, you see the contrast. <laughs> Why did he come this way? It's mind blowing. He had an absolute right 
all the rights in the universe to come in great glory, in great pomp, in great circumstance, with a million red carpets and every being in the universe shouting hail to the king of glory. But that's not how he came. It's astounding. But he's going to come that way. We just read it. But he didn't come that way at the first advent. That's going to be at the second advent. But make no mistake, the way he did come in the first advent is full of glory too. Amen? Because there is great glory in humility. And the message of this incredible passage in this hymn, really at the heart of it is humility. Quickly, before we go farther, I want to point out that this hymn says a lot about the nature of Jesus Christ. But one important point I want to make is it says he was still fully God. All he did was let go of his rights as God and hide that glory when he took on human flesh. Many today try and make the case that, well... It's all about him being human. And he wasn't really fully God. He, he's just a man who tapped into the divine and, and lived a life that we should exemplify. Okay? Now, that's partially right. We should walk in his steps. Amen? Follow in his steps. But he came as fully God and fully man. I, 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 I like the idea of picturing this in relation to a full eclipse of the sun. What happens when the sun has a full eclipse? The sun doesn't change its nature at all, does it? It's just as bright and just as glorious and just as hot as it ever was. But the moon comes across it. And its glory is hidden, covered up by the moon. And that's what is really being described here about the nature of Christ. He didn't lay down his divinity in any way, shape or form, but he took on a covering, if you will. He took on a new aspect added to his nature, if you will, when he took on our nature, but for sin. He became everything that we are, but for our sin. Amen. Very important point as well. So, two reasons I think Jesus came this way. One, so he could live that sinless life that we are incapable of living. And two, so he could die the death that would set us free. As the sacrificial, spotless, holy lamb that we had to have. And all the lambs, speaking of lambs, that were sacrificed through the Old Testament, pointing toward this lamb. Amen? He had to take on flesh. Had to happen for us to be rescued. Both were accomplished, I'll suggest, based on what we just read, through Holy Spirit-empowered humility. A humility that brought total submission to the Father. A submission that carried him all the way to the cross. Amen? 
So the submission to humility, I should say, surrounding his arrival, his life and his departure, the ultimate humility of going to this terrible cross for our sake are examples for us. As we ponder Christmas, as we look at that manger and look at the simplicity of how he came. It's to teach us. And I just want to say a few things about that. You could call this sermon, the way up is down. That's a biblical principle. The way up is always down. Jesus not only came to give us his life to save us, but he came and showed us how life should be lived. In verse 3 and 4, let's read that again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant. Or other translations say better than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And isn't that what Jesus was doing when he came? He, he, he set aside his interest, his rights, because of his interest in us and our condition and our future and our lives. Amen? Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, it says in the King James. Let this mind of humility be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's a good translation, but I like the ESV better. Listen to the difference. You won't see it, so listen to what I'm saying. It says, have this mind among yourselves. You see the difference between those two? Let this mind be in you. Have this mind among yourselves. I like that because of what Paul's purpose is. Unity. Amen? So we have this mind that Christ had among ourselves. And listen to the second part. King James says, which was also in Christ Jesus. But ESV says, and I love this, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see the difference? It's all true. (laughs) It was the mind of Christ, but I love the ESV. This mind of humility, which means low humility. The Greek word here literally means lowliness of mind. Lowliness in the way you think and the attitude of the way you see life and those around you. You set yourself underneath. And it says, this mind which is yours in Christ. What's the most important phrase of the New Testament? In Christ. Anything we have has got to be found in Christ. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. There it is. The way up is down. It's a command. Humble yourselves. I cannot humble myself. I am proud. (laughs) I like to think of myself as better than you. But in Christ, I have his mind. Amen? I walk in the Spirit. And the Spirit is the, the Spirit of Christ. So I have his mind. I can walk in humility in Christ. And this is the exhortation that Paul's giving us. Brothers and sisters, walk in humility among yourselves. This is all that will bring us into the unity that Christ 
calls us into. This is all that will display to the world what Christ looks like and why he came the way he did in his first advent. New Living Translation puts it this way. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus had. Who counted equality with God something that he didn't have to hang on to, but made himself nothing. Made himself a servant. And you know, when you read the word servant, you can just exactly put the word slave. God Almighty became a slave on this earth. A slave to his father. Denied his rights as God and fully became humbled by doing only what he saw his father doing all the way to the cross. So I, I want to give you a couple scriptures that demonstrate for us that Christ practiced this with his life. Practiced what he preached. Mark 10, 43 and 45. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate service. Again, the king came not to be served. That's what kings expect. Everybody around him is there to serve him. You know, the grapes and the mouth and the, 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 the guys that drink the wine to make sure it's not poison. Everybody serves the king. But not this king. He came and said, I have come to serve you. That's my mind. That's my heart. That's the lowliness of the way I'm thinking. Follow me. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Let me say that in a way that can help us understand that. He was rich, ultimately. King of the universe. He owns everything. But when he came to this earth... He set all that aside, and the only wealth he had was that purse that Judas carried around. Amen? And when they had to buy some bread, if he wasn't going to just say, let there be bread, uh, they pulled money out of that bag and went and bought it. But he was poor. But that's not what this is talking about. He became poor, meaning he emptied himself. He emptied his pockets, if you will, of all the rights he had. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. It's the same thing we're reading here in Philippians. Amen? And remember the Beatitudes. The, number, the very first Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've probably heard this. I've heard preachers say, and I love it, that the idea of this is like a wild stallion. We've all seen it in the old westerns, right? They're trying, throwing horses or ropes around the horse. They've got two or three guys holding him, and he's jumping and kicking people. And, and the goal is to break the spirit of that stallion so that that stallion becomes peaceable and obedient to those he's there to serve. And that's the idea here. Blessed are 
the broken, the poor in spirit, those who are obedient to their father. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew 5, 5 says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you got heaven and earth tied up in humility and meekness. So upside down. Amen. So counterintuitive to what it should be. But this is what it is. And this is what our calling is. Are you with me? couple words about humility. What does it look like? We, we've seen this, you know, it means you, you consider others as more significant than you. you. You don't walk with selfish ambition or be conceited. And, and humility is the opposite of claiming our rights. That's what Jesus did. He let go of his rights as God. So humility is the opposite of claiming our rights. But we have such a propensity to want to do that, don't we? Don and I teach about marriage. Uh, and and the key, you know what the key to a healthy marriage is? Not living in a 50-50 relationship. You know what a 50-50 relationship is? When you give and expect something in return. I'll do my part and I expect you to do, your, to do yours. And that's the recipe for divorce or at least a miserable marriage. Do you know what a glorious marriage is made of? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, which means I give, period. I don't expect you to have to return to me what I give to you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, nothing, we have nothing to give him. But he came and served us all the way to the cross. Amen. I don't have to have my way. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be respected. I don't have to be thought special or valuable or important. I don't have to be loved by others. I have no right to any of these things. I lay all those rights down in Christ. So I don't fight for them. I won't be hurt or offended if I don't receive those things from you. The mind of Christ is to give, to serve. Amen. That brings unity among us. That means brings unity and love in a marriage and in a family. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, respect your husbands. You can do that in Christ. Humility is the opposite of you owe me. Paul said, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul says, I'm obligated to everybody. What was he obligated to do? To bring them the gospel. By the the words he said and the life of humility and sacrifice that he lived. Humility is the opposite of thinking, I'm better than you, as we've seen in the scripture. That my tribe is better than your tribe. You know, there's a lot being said today about racism, isn't there? And a lot of of pushback against the church. Books being written. Oh, the church has been complicit. 
complicit. That's the word, right? Yeah. And, and, and racism. The church needs to rise up, rise up and speak against it. I have no problem with that. But if we preach Christ, we're doing that. We're preaching. This is who our, our Lord is. He came to serve. He came to say, you're the one who's important. You're the one who I'm giving my life for. I, I didn't word that. He's not saying he's not important. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Um, racism is about division and thinking I'm better than you. This says, no, my mind is you're more significant than me. That takes care of racism, doesn't it? I like to call it tribalism because it really is much deeper than it's not really about skin color at all. It's about attitude towards somebody that's different from you. It can be your same race. It could be Baptist and Methodist. <laughs> it could be Pentecostal versus non-Pentecostal. We've got all kinds of tribes, don't we? But unity comes when we say, I don't have to have my way. I don't have to be right, except on the essentials. But I'm here to love you, to understand you, to hear you, to walk with you. Amen? I'm almost done. I have two quick conclusions. First conclusion, as we ponder Christmas, let our prayer be from Psalm 139. I think it's one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts. And see, O Lord, any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't that a great prayer? And that's really what I'm presenting to you this morning. As we contemplate the humility of Christ and the way he's come in this first advent. And we are supposed to have that mind. Which we have in Christ Jesus. Pray. Lord, where am I not walking in your mind? Where am I not taking hold of this mind which I have, your mind? Search me, Lord. Know my heart. Know my thoughts. Show me what is in me that is not in that place. And you, Holy Spirit, fill me and take me there. Amen? Are you struggling, as many do at Christmas, with depression? With burdens? Stealing your joy? Take your eyes off yourself. Put them on other people. Serve. Have this mind in you, which is in Christ Jesus. And you won't be depressed anymore. And my second conclusion, and the last one, the last part of this hymn, starting at verse 9, or is it 8? Where it says, Therefore, Therefore, God has highly exalted him because of that mind, because of that lowliness of mind and heart. Jesus' father exalted him. Well, there's a lot of theology in that that could be unpacked and thrilled over. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's every knee. Anywhere, ever, will bow, must bow, has to bow 
to this king that came this way. And every tongue will confess, must confess, has to confess that he is Lord. That's the second advent. That happens when he comes again and every eye sees him. As he is. And has to say, you are Lord. And I leave you with this. The greatest question. Have you bowed your knee to the king of the universe yet? To Jesus, the lover and rescuer of your soul. Have you humbled yourself before him? while today is still called the day of salvation. Amen? So I tell you, you've heard this about Jesus today. You're going to see a depiction of the glory of His first coming. The glory of humility. But when He comes again, the glory will be very... You fill in the blank. (laughs) We'll be on our faces. Amen? Will you be in him or or will you be terrified at his coming because you have never bowed your knee before? So let today be the day of your salvation. And even as you watch this play, ponder his glory and whether you have humbled yourself before this great king. Amen. God bless you.